10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of Am I Allowed to Like Anything, the podcast that talks to people about their work, their lives, and how they are maintaining their optimism in this world. I'm your host, Darian Simone Harvin, and this week I have Miles Johnson on the show with me. Miles is a writer, editor, author, and critic raised in between New York and Georgia. And Miles and I met on the internet, as many of us do. And when he moved to New York City, from Atlanta. I wanted to talk to him in real life and get to know this person who has always been pretty open on the internet about their feelings and their thoughts. So everything that you're learning about Miles, I'm pretty much learning along with you. We talk about his work so far as a writer, Kendrick's new album, Damn, and what winning looks like for Miles as a Black queer man. If you haven't already, sign up for Am I Allowed to Like Anything's newsletter and you'll get a chance to win a curated box of products. Either I or a guest has shouted out on this episode as things we like. And if you like this episode, don't forget to rate and subscribe on iTunes at the very end. And as always, you can join the conversation using the hashtag A-I-A-T-L-A. Oh, we're cute. Mm Mm-hmm. We are cute. You missed it. We, we already like celebrated. We are cute. <laughs> oh my gosh. Can we take one gift in here on mine real quick? I'm just going to keep these on for a little to make sure that I sound good. I'm facing the camera or the camera. I'm just not listening to myself because I'll get like distracted by the fact that I can hear myself. Really? And totally get up. I'm so horrible. No, I, 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 I was that. not born I don't want to wanna judge you in that way. <laughs> I don't want to like keep you from your truth. <sighs> Oh my God, that was a perfect tweet with this gift. Yes, it was so cute. It's so cute. Yeah. That's how to pick one. I was like, that looks like recording. I try to, I try. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you think about it, you have been, I mean, we talked about this when we were at the Get Down Party. Mm -hmm. You have been on the internet and writing, specifically on Twitter, for like, since you were 18, younger than 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super duper young, like born in the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Miles, thank you for being here. I'm so excited to have you. I feel like I sound like a generic person right now, but it's so (laughs) true. I'm so happy that we are not only in the same room right now, but we are recording a podcast together. Yes, thank you for having me in the... In, in your space, in your world, in your project. It means so much to me. I'm very honored. Thank you. I like what you're doing, and I'm glad to be a part of the legacy building that you're doing on the podcast. Miles, thank you. You're welcome. That actually really means a lot to me. I hate to be that person who like wants to give a speech right now, yeah. but I actually <laughs> really, really appreciate it. And I don't know, I keep on just thinking back to like that night where we first met at the get down party. Mm-hmm. I thought that was such a special moment. Yeah, it was. It was. Like... Coming to New York, you kind of, like, notice when people... Connection is very rare to have. It's not rare mm-hmm. because people are not capable of doing it. It's just, are they interested in doing it in New York? And I'm always interested in connecting with people, specifically black people, specifically, like, people who I feel, like, understand it and who have, like, artistic, creative ambitions. And I think that, like, you were very open to the connection, and mm-hmm. I was, and I was very, like, honored again in that moment of you, like, inviting me to something that... I didn't have to be at, and, you know, the first person I saw was Nas, and I'm like... Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> so, yes. so I'm over here just like, oh, this is so great, and I hope this person matches this great uh, gift that she gave me, and you met and you, and you met me, and you were warm, and you were open to connect and figure out each other, and I, that's the recipe for magic. Yeah, like, and I, the point that you just touched on, I, I was actually going to ask you about it, because... Mm-hmm. Recently, you had, first of all, you've been doing like a stream of thoughts mm-hmm. on Twitter mm-hmm. since you've been moved to NYC. And something that you mentioned was just kind of touching on 
how receptive people are or aren't to connecting with other people. Not even on like a networking level level per se, but I want to say kind of on a deeper level than that where it's like, oh, maybe we could be friends or, oh, maybe we can collaborate on something together. Or I just want to connect with you. Right. You know, like I just want to... I feel like we have similar interests and I want us to feel like we have each other's backs. Mm-hmm. And I, I really feel like the only reason why I've continued to make it here is because I have like people who yeah. believe in me and who will look out for me. Yeah. And what's like interesting about that is that you'll hear all these kind of like horror stories of people coming to New York and not having um, anything and, or excuse me, coming to New York or being successful and feeling alone and all this other stuff. Right. And it's almost like they, like, uh, skip over, like, what might be the cause of that. Yeah. And to me, the cause of that is so obvious. Like, if you're a human being, you want to have relationships. And if you're a human being, um, you want to feel connected to people. And if you do, so- and if uh, you work and kind of ignore that need and that, um, uh and that kind of, like, impulse to, like, connect with other people, then, of course, you're going to be successful and really feel really empty and feel really unfulfilled and stuff. So, I don't know. To me, it just, like, makes sense. Like, oh, like, I want to be successful just like anybody else. I want to be, feel complete and feel like um, my work means something and is um, being expressed on its highest level. But I don't want to do that at the sake of this kind of, like, other, like, human experience, which is connection. And if you just, to me, are aware and conscious of that, then you can, you know, do things to prevent that. And it's not always easy. Sometimes it's very, very extremely hard. But I think that a lot of things are very hard, but we still do them, you know, and we still, you know, are intentional about doing them. And yeah, I I don't know. I came to New York just knowing that I was not going to become New York. I was going to like, I wasn't going to like melt with New York and that environment, that energy. I was going to like kind of hold on to the things that I know for me have given me the biggest opportunities in my life and the fact that I'm a real honest open person open person and and that has been the reason for my success aside mm-hmm. from like my community and the love that surrounds me mm-hmm. and i'm not gonna abandon that just because like my zip code has changed yeah yeah <laughs> i mean i think that you have the right idea yeah and i 100 agree with you and it's so it's so great to hear you talk in like this space as well as we're recording this podcast just because to me i think that I mean, we met each other technically Mm. on the Internet, right? Right, right. That's like how we got to know each other. Um, But also at the same time, I think specifically with you and why I have gravitated towards you is because you are someone who, number one, you are clear, right? Mm. Like you clearly express your ideas and your points and then you articulate them and you back up your points right so like for me it's so easy to follow your work and to understand what you're saying right because you make it so easy for you make it so accessible i feel like i could be 18 or i could be 30 Mm. or i could be 26 Mm -hmm. and it's so easy for me to understand what the point you're trying to make right right right. number two you bring context to your work and this is actually something that i talk about with jason parham he is a senior editor at the fader um was just like being how important it is to be a writer in 2017 who brings context to your work Mm -hmm. whether that means talking about the present but also contextualizing it by talking about what's happened in the past and then also talking about what you may think happened in the future. And to me, those are the kinds of writers that I really want to uplift. And those are the kinds of writers that I really want to, I want to have influence so that people can trust me and know that the things that I share are from writers who are bringing context and clear ideas and clear voices um, throughout their work. Right. I mean, I have a lot of respect for writers and I kind of have, made the choice that I want to kind of become a curator of good work and right. I want people to feel like they can trust me so that if I share a tweet right. or if I share something on Facebook mm-hmm. or on Instagram people they know that they can trust me to trust you right, and right. They therefore trust you in your work so anyways that's my spiel yeah and it's been like such an interesting like process because when I first decided, because I've been writing like my whole life, mm-hmm. but it's like it's never been like this thing where I think of like what, hmm, how can I put this? It's never been about what if I could write well. Yeah, it was always been like what can I write about? Why and was it never could you write well? I just always had this like 
I think some people look in the mirror and think that they are beautiful. I think some people um, can check their bank accounts and know that they are rich. I think that some people can know they are really good at sports. And I just have always known that I have, like, the capacity, if I, like, work hard enough to articulate what is going on, no matter mm-hmm. how complex, no matter how deep, no matter how, sca- no matter how scary, I know that if I, like, meditate on it enough, I can, like, figure out the language to articulate what's happening inside of me or what I was, like, observing. Yeah. And I did not necessarily name this as a gift or as like um something that was special until <laughs> i got older and i was reading so many people who i who i thought i was like oh, this is not good writing you know to me <laughs> as awful as that sounds it really was i was like i think that i can like do something that's a little bit different a little bit different or better exactly so once i got old enough i knew that i can and that's not to say i could never improve on my writing and stuff like that like i'm always improving mm-hmm. there's things that i've r- written um, five years ago, last year, that I kind of cringe at. But at the same time, I've always knew I had the capacity to be a great writer. Yeah. And I think that's, like, something that I've noticed, like, a lot of writers may not be able to say about themselves. Or they're still maybe getting down on themselves, even if they are great writers or they have had They don't have the confidence people. or the awareness that they, like, they bring mm-hmm. a specific thing to, like, the, um, to the paper. Okay. But... Mm-hmm. I was going to say, let's talk. I want to talk more about that and that confidence. Yeah. Because I think that's something that I have noticed, even for myself in, in being a black woman, mm-hmm. is to have this degree of confidence mm-hmm. where you understand and realize that I know that there are a bunch of people who have kind of told you how you should be or what will happen in your life or how people um, will perceive you and in there's a very large chance that it will affect what you're able to do right, right. in your life yeah but I, I somehow have been able to like maintain and to create this confidence that allows me to like say fuck everybody this is how I feel about myself yeah. you know and this is I'm really confident with who I am despite what the world has told me where my confidence level has capped or has peaked right to me this is the way that the world should be for me right right and kind of like standing up against that by also being super cognizant of like also also the way that the world is it's right. really complicated but I say all of that to say that one of my first questions that I ask everyone on my podcast mm-hmm. is to talk to me about how you grew up and maybe and maybe in in that the listeners and also myself will get an idea of how you built this confidence or maintain this confidence right. or or maybe not right i don't really know right but i hope so i don't <laughs> yeah um i grew up lo- location wise i grew i was born in new york um, oh, okay very very early I, we moved like mm-hmm. i was around like like let's say like 11 12 like we moved to georgia okay what and, part of new york did you live um, I was born in Stony Brook and a, a little bit in Harlem. I don't really remember that, but mm-hmm. mostly in Long Island. Okay. I have early childhood memories and, like, mid-childhood memories of, like, living on Long Island and being suburban. And me having almost this, like, cognitive dissonance about, like, the New York that I would see on television <laughs> and the New York I was experiencing because right. um, Long Island was so suburban. Right. So I was like, where's this world that, like, is supposedly, like, right underneath my nose, right? So, um... Yeah, so, like, I um, grew up there, and then we moved to Georgia, and then um, we lived kind of on the outskirts. We lived, uh, like, by Six Flags Drive. Um, these places would mean nothing to somebody who's not familiar with Georgia or North Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But um, then eventually I moved out when I was, like, 18 and um, went to Atlanta to, like, live on my own and be, like, a big bad wolf. But um, <laughs> how I grew up was really interesting because I grew up in a very, very, very uniquely liberal home. Mm-hmm. And I would never take that away, like from almost like a privilege that I have. Like, so mm-hmm. when I discovered things about my gender, my sexuality, there was not a fear that I was going to be kicked out. There was not a fear that I was going to be abused or violated or um, other because of who I naturally was. Mm-hmm. Um, and who did you mainly grow up in your home with? So I grew up with my mother all, all always. Okay. My mother had a step... I had a stepfather. Okay. And then my mother came out to me when I was 15 okay. as, like, a full-fledged lesbian. But I always knew there was, like, a queerness that existed in my both my mother and my biological father. Okay. So, like, I grew up knowing that I had two black queer parents. And my mother went to a um, Black Panther High School. So she oh, wow. didn't really go to, like, or she's me school. She didn't really go to, like, a quote-unquote normal high school. Mm-hmm. Where did she go or what? where did she grow up? 
Brooklyn, Bedside Brooklyn, okay. and then in Brownsville, Brooklyn. And she didn't necessarily um, get to like this um, area of a normal school. She didn't go to this like a normal school until she was like fifteen, sixteen. Okay. So what is a normal school? We don't even have. Yeah, to that's all. That. That's all. <laughs> like quote unquote, whatever. But it's really interesting to like know somebody and to like be the child of somebody who had, does not memorize the the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. Who grew up with her beauty being centered, and my mother is like a deep a dark woman like mm-hmm. you know she would go to like the playground with the kids who did not go to Black Panther school and would be called Tar Baby you know so she had like a very specific experience right. um, with her color and with her like and her blackness and I think being raised by a woman who grew up like that and also having that queer intersection really changed me I think having a father who was black and also had like a queer intersection really um, changed me um, in made me think about things differently. My um, stepfather was, like, totally straight, like, but he was, like, a DJ. He was a photographer. Um, he had, like, a very, like, good, like, like corporate job, but he was yeah. very interested, like, on the weekends. He would, like, do his corporate job nine to five, whatever. Yeah. And then, like, on the weekends, he would, like, DJ. And, oh, my like, God. Amazing. Yeah, so he would I'm do- sorry. That's amazing. <laughs> I love I love stories and people like that. Right. So, like, <laughs> so, like, and he was, like, obsessed with, like, house music and, like, mm-hmm. my knowledge about, and I love, like, Literally, like, I, like, bleed music. Like, right, that, like, I do too. That tells so much of my story is, like, when you get to know me and my relationship with music. And I think um, he introduced me to um, house music. He grew up in, like, Queens, New York. He grew up in Chicago. He teached me about, like, house music, um, Paradise Garage, like, all this kind of, like, historical context of, like, black people and, like, disco and house music. My stepfather told me as, like, this, like, straight black man who knew he was kind of, like, raising a feminine son even though he never called me anything to like let me know I was othered like Mm -hmm. me looking back on it like I was very feminine I was very like obviously going going to be queer and that was just never a conversation that he ever brought up and I don't know if that's a conversation that him and my mother had about like you're not going to talk to my son like that I don't know if he just was not a homophobic man Mm -hmm. but I had a unique freedom as a black child in my household yeah now with that I still went to a school where it was homophobia. There was right. white supremacy. There were all these other things. So I kind of had this weird thing where the world that my mother and my household was um, feeding me was kind of this like utopia. And then the the world that the world, excuse me, the world that the world, the outside world was feeding me. Um, was not that. Was not that. And I kind of had to figure out what the truth was for myself. Um but in that, the fact that like I, I brought those questions to my mother, the fact that I brought those um, concerns to my mother at a very young age, and um, she would answer them for me in an age-appropriate way, I learned very quickly that <laughs> the outside world is not always going to tell you the truth. The outside mm-hmm. world is going to tell you what is in the interest for you. The outside world is not going to tell you the truth. The outside world is going to tell you what is in the best interest for you to believe. Mm-hmm. And learning that at such a young, mm-hmm. <laughs> learning that at such a young age, um, gave me a kind of um, confidence of knowing that everything that I am viewing is a kind of lie. So who says I need to be like this and who says I need to act like this or gain this or lose this? This is for me to decide for myself, and that is a unique confidence because the things that I am like often measured against, I don't even respect or see as real. Mm. I don't, those things do not resonate with me. So, Can you give me an example? Or even just a memory, you know? Because I kind of, I kind of, uh, when you tell me that, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Even some things, I think a great, I think even a great example of what you just said was a piece that you wrote for OK Player about right. Get Out. Right. That was just, it was a criticism and it was a critique of this right film. it didn't look familiar to me yeah and mm-hmm. so and there's this specific uh, graph that you say how comfortable was what's the main character's name michael I cannot remember. I cannot remember his name either. He was like, how comfortable is he really with whiteness that he would even surround himself around these white people to begin with? Right. And you had all of these questions and I could very much tell that this was you. Like you were kind of putting yourself in his situation in a way where you were like, I would never even put myself in this situation. That's the interest of a film. Right. The interest in a film or any art project when you have a singular character is that you are supposed to be empathetic with that singular character. So I am supposed to come into this film and that the I that I'm speaking of right now is 
me as a queer black person, mm-hmm. but the I is also a white woman. The I is like the masses, so it could be a plethora of people, but you're supposed to be empathetic to this character. And there were some real hiccups to how he <laughs> arrived there that I just could not understand how he arrived there. But um, but to answer your question, I think that, and this is like one of the reasons why like, I love like Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. beauty and sexuality and desire made me realize that I grew up in a different world than other like other parts of my peers. So when I would um talk to not talk to but like listen to Toni Morrison talk about the bluest eye, um she would talk about it. She would she and she would say that this came from like a real situation. This came from like me really talking to this um girl at a very young age and saying like this is why do you why do you want to be like this? Why do you why do you want why do you want blue eyes? And th- that that like mm-hmm. story really evolving out of this like dark child wanting blue eyes. And I think you have to recognize the child who wants blue eyes with the dark skin and understand where that's coming from. Mm-hmm. But then also understand when you are not the child who ever even thought about having blue eyes. Yeah. And that those kind of situations would happen to me often mm. where the things that people like I didn't th- like when I dropped out of high, um, excuse me, not high school. But when I dropped out of college, I didn't think of it as more than a choice of another way for me to arrive at success. I just felt like this wasn't moving fast enough for me. It wasn't exploring things that I thought I was going to explore. So I'm going to figure out a different route for myself. Yeah. Other people would never leave college for the idea that who is looking and and right. what will make me be seen as a smart person and right. what will make me seen as a successful person. Okay. Even if you're a millionaire, there are millionaires, people who have more money than I can ever even um, think about obtaining who will go back to college just because of the quote-unquote feeling or just because of the quote-unquote I need to do this for me. But what are you doing for yourself? Like, what what right. is was the function of college? Um, I think that's a great example. And yeah. also, I think it's almost like maybe you're around of, of a bunch of other black kids and you're playing at the playground or something right. like that. And everyone is like, oh, I wish I had lighter skin. Yeah. You're like, what? I, I don't wish that at all. Right. Almost it's- like that seems like. The situations right. that I'm talking about. Right. And and even being like the gay community, there will be things that I would notice. And I had to be better on myself and be softer with um, both myself and my community when it comes to this. But there will be things that people would really desire or um, they would talk about these interactions with white men and stuff. And, and them not being thin enough or, you know, there is a such thing. There's a... A lot of times, black people are built differently, or a lot of times we don't necessarily fetishize or sexualize or eroticize having, like, a bone-thin body, you know what I mean? And there's a beauty in having a thin body, but there's also a beauty in having a thick body and a beauty in having a fat body. And black people kind of have been very diverse in honoring all those different types of bodies. Exactly. And then once you kind of go into, like, the gay community that it's very white supremacist um, focus, then all of a sudden the body that you were told was beautiful is just fat and ugly and undesirable Mm -hmm. and um, you need to transform it in order to participate in what we're doing. And I just never experienced that the the black men who I've loved and desired and and who have, uh, who introduced me to like my body and my like sexuality in a very specific way have always thought that like my thighs and my ass and my belly and like my skin color were beautiful now we had a plethora of other disagreements (laughs) that i write about but my color and my proximity to whiteness just wasn't one of them and again i I used to be very harsh i would just say like what is wrong with y'all like what is going on Mm -hmm. but then me being suffer with myself and, and again being able to be suffering with my community made me realize that everybody was not raised like I was yes, raised yes, and yes, yes. it was a gift and I can't just like look at people and say you weren't raised like I was raised so you're wrong right. I need to actually like harness this gift that I had about how I was raised and s- figure out a way that I can give almost somebody like a piece of like my childhood or a piece of the comfort and love yes. that I like know. Yes. Um, that re- that really, really resonates with me. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, the tough moments where you'll go through where essentially you'll realize that you thought all of <clears throat> the people in the world, or, or, or in your case, you thought that all of, not that you would, that you specifically would think this, but 
you kind of were of the idea because of the people you had, who maybe you had initially react or interacted with mm-hmm. that they all felt a similar way right to some capacity but you don't realize that it's because of the way that you were raised you don't realize it's because of like the things that you were exposed to or the specific privileges that you had that this is the way that you are and instead of like looking down on people or instead right. of acting superior really what you need to what you need to understand is that if you want to make connections with people if you want to form relationships it's it's about more empathy and it's about more sincerity and it's about like being more like patient with people in ways that also is going to like make you a softer person and also benefit you because right. like there are qualities that <clears throat> a- another individual may have that you don't and right. i think that that's something that i also realize and really try to carry with me. I don't know if I explain that in the most articulate way, but it's so important to realize that we are all not of the same world and we right. have to be soft with each other because I I at least remind myself once a week, like you really never know what people are going through. Right. You don't know what they've been through. And granted, they've done, they may have done like really sh- shitty or horrible things or they don't think the way you do or they're not developed in the same way that you are um that's no reason for you to treat them with um with a with less decency right and yeah. and, and to know that like if i have a privilege or if i have a point of view that mm-hmm. is better i don't want to say better but is just more expansive than somebody else's if i keep that to myself and i do not share that and if i do not try to make that um into something that can be shared with a, a community that I'm known b- better than the people that I critique and dismantle and mm. and engage with. If I'm if I'm hoarding like the things that have freed me, then or and if I'm judging people who have don't have access to that, instead of trying to give them pieces of the things that have freed me, that makes me no better than the things that I'm critiquing. Like that's yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, that's true. So when. Do you feel like you found your voice? And I specifically mean this in terms of writing. Mm -hmm. Because to me, I mean, writing is certainly a process of growth Mm -hmm. and betterment. Is betterment a word? Yes, betterment is is? a word. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I almost pulled out my dictionary. I have the dictionary app on on the front screen of my phone because I'm always trying to learn new words. Not that betterment should be one of them. Anyways, right. <laughs> anyways, I love making up words. I'm like, I love making up words. And I'm like, this language is bullshit. Like, even like <laughs> when people think I'm a good writer or stuff, I'm like, this language is bullshit. And the fact that like I didn't go to school and I have like a hold on it, and I probably had just more time than I should have had on my hands in order to really figure out how to like navigate this language. Right. But I'm not even. I actually get no true sense of self or confidence at the fact that I'm like able to navigate this language. Yeah, like it doesn't make you y- yeah. you don't feel like, oh I didn't go to college, but like I'm stunting. You don't feel No, like, yeah. I don't feel like that. I feel I feel very confident when I'm able to communicate an idea to a mm-hmm. large group of people that yes. I think is abstract or radical or interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to make somebody say, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. That gives me a lot of confidence because Everybody can't do that to one person, let alone multiple people. Yeah. But, like, coming up with an eloquent sentence and stuff, like, Hawthorne, Oscar Wilde, like, it's it's all good, but a lot of times it's just not as interesting. And I feel like when I read people like Washington Shire, yeah. she should be in the same conversation as, like, Hawthorne because, to me, she has arrived at sentences that are a lot more impressive totally. than, <laughs> than, like, yes. some of the great American literary canon. So it's just... I, do, I just don't, I don't know. I have a very weird view of, like, who's dope and who's not. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when people give me compliments, I just don't care because I don't care about the people who you are comparing me to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, the, I was going to ask you a question you essentially already answered. Mm-hmm. I was curious if you had went to school or if you had finished um and so I guess what was your you kind of already explained it, but if you if you don't mind me asking, where mm-hmm. did you like enroll in school, and then when did yeah. how long were you there for? I went to a community college, and then I went to an art college called Savannah College of Art and Design. Okay, and um, we went to I went for creative writing, and then I dropped out. I was gonna ask you. I think 
more of what I'm eager to know was once you dropped out mm-hmm. and it wasn't, oh, I need to go to class. Oh, I need to do this, this. I don't have, mm-hmm. I have this homework. What, um, what were you filling your time doing? You know, I just feel like to me, and this is something I talk about all the time, but the time in the space to create and to yeah. think yeah. is something that I don't think anyone, right. I don't care what generation you're a part of, you don't have enough time and space to think and to create and to become your brilliant self. Right. And so I'm curious to know with this time and space that you that you maybe had um, after dropping out of college, what were you doing? Right. So I didn't have, I had a working mother. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a trust fund and I don't have anything. It's so interesting when people know you from the internet and yeah. try to piece together like why they think that you could have existed in the way that you do at a young mm-hmm. age. But I didn't have any type of real economic privilege. Mm-hmm. What I did have was a mother who <laughs> who who believed psychics, who had a very <laughs> uh, intense spiritual practice. And she knew for a very long time who I was supposed to be. So she would do things that were kind of odd or let me do things that maybe a normal mother would say, "You get your ass up and go do this. Because there was like a psychic, a community psychic, a community shaman, spiritual leader that told her I was supposed to be a teacher or supposed to write. Mm-hmm. So as long as I was doing that, she was good. Which is like an really weird thing so when I dropped out of college my first instinct was like oh let me try to find like a retail job that's like Mm -hmm. not intense but whatever and I found plenty of retail jobs plenty of jobs period that were bullshit but I also didn't have to work every day and Mm -hmm. I would just come home and be able to write also during that time that's when I first got into um got into like Atlanta's art scene and I began to like creative direct for people and I began to like fashion do like fashion styling for people and from there, hmm, this is like such a weird time time in my life to think back on because I feel like I don't remember it like chronologically. But yeah. I don't know from there I was writing and I was trying to use um, fashion styling and art direction as a way to enter into writing and like music journalism or something. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. So you were you were working a job, some yeah. sort of job, and you were writing. Yeah, then I would get like fired. <laughs> Why would you get fired? I mean, I just would just because I... It, Jobs are stupid. Yeah, and, I, and that wasn't like the space where you were meant to be. Yeah, or maybe just, you ha- you have like this this attitude. I, we've talked about this before. We're like we are entrepreneur. We are entrepreneurial people in a way. I felt like that, and I also felt like there's never been anything that I took. I've it's, it's never been anything I took very seriously until mm-hmm. I like was introduced to the queer black community. Mm-hmm. And when I meet queer black kids, when I, once I released the children's book that was the f- one of the first times I can remember taking a community very seriously or taking a thing very seriously okay and sometimes when I'm working jobs I'm like girl this is not open heart surgery this is folding shirts like I don't care the I can't the world is gonna continue to turn I can't pretend to care and I think a lot of people learn very early on how to pretend to care but I'm I'm over here like reading like Alex Haley at a very young age and like knowing the things that were like haunting a man's mind and in politics at a very early age and then you want me to obsess over making like a store money every day it just yeah. I, it never met meshed well with me yeah but because i love clothes they would hire me because i'm articulate because people would like my personality they would hire me and they would very quickly see that i was not the bubbly capitalist that they were hoping for <laughs> <laughs> i want to be a bubbling capitalist <laughs> So I want to talk about some of the work that you were doing maybe in the in the past couple or, or past two or three years mm-hmm. that you were doing before you moved to New York, which was, have you even been living in New York for a month, Miles? No, it's just been, this is my third week. Okay. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because I met you like my second week. Did you? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And we, okay, amazing. <laughs> so I want to kind of talk about how you began to uh, get paid to write. 
you know, mm-hmm. maybe or m- maybe how you got into a publication that you really respected or that is more not mainstream, but more distributed yeah. widely. Like, mm-hmm. how did you maybe for your first piece for NPR or your first piece for OK Player, you know, like right. how did you and I think this also may be helpful for other writers who are not living in these media cities, a New York or in LA, right? You know, how did you how did you do that? Right. The first thing I would tell anybody who's like a writer is that the first thing that you need is Wi-Fi connection, <laughs> and the only thing that you really truly need is Wi-Fi connection. Anything else, you have to decide what kind of writer you want to be. But if you just want to be paid to write and be known as a writer, you just need Wi-Fi connection at this point. Mm-hmm. That's it. Agreed. E- everything else is just a lie. You don't need to yeah. be there. Yeah, and I hope we start to move toward more towards that right. way of thinking. Right. In our so society. Right. <laughs> because everything else is just a lie, and people trying to be traditionalist and try to make you romanticizing this like day of like publishing and print and and and, and writing that it just truly does not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, even with college degrees, it just doesn't exist anymore. But either which way, about two years ago, I released a children's book. And that children's book ended up getting a lot of press. Large um, fears. Large fears, yeah. Um, ended up getting a lot of press. It was on NPR, NBC, um, I, The Guardian, just every, Buzz, BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed or something, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, every place that I could have imagined this a book to arrive, it arrived at, and it was not very strategic. It wasn't this huge press thing. It was very basic of me, just me and the person who I was like partnering with at the time, the illustrator, um, just coming together and just trying to get like the dream people, you know, and not really think anything will bite, but like perhaps we'll be on Huffington Post, whatever, but not really thinking about it. But then once all those things did happen, I understood in a different way of how accessible these outlets were. Yeah. And it always used to feel so far and like so much work, but I was like, this is actually way more accessible than I thought. So once I put the period on large fears and I had that experience and all everything that came with that, I wanted to figure out what was my next step and how I wanted to be known because I didn't really want to be known as like a children's book author because mm-hmm. I curse and I talk about sex and I talk about so many other things that like may not be the most appropriate thing for somebody who's only known for like producing children's books. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started producing political content and like kind of these like pop cultural critiques mm-hmm. because I was very interested in doing stuff like that and then also give people used to me talking about adult stuff. So so from there, I would literally just submit to the people who I thought were doing really good work. Mm-hmm. Again, I think that I have a very unique confidence that mm-hmm. even when I got rejected, I knew they were rejecting me, no matter how true or false this was. They were rejecting me because they just simply have bad taste because I know that I have great writing. Mm-hmm. I know I have great ideas. That could Again, that could definitely be a lie. But I think me believing that helped me just stay persistent and not be discouraged I'm waiting for the for people to catch up to what I'm doing, you know. And I think mm-hmm. so many people have this like insecurity about their writing that a rejection or maybe people not responding to them makes them think that their writing is w- bad or is not worthy. That's never been my train of thought. I just okay. always thought that like, no, you just are not on my like wave yet. We're not on the same wave. Like we're not on the same page. Right, and I and. I can't. I cannot remember. I think the establishment was like the first time that I really got like. Was that the first time? I want to say the establishment was the first time I, I got paid to like write. Okay. And I. They're knew, based out of Seattle. Yes. Yes, I, I believe say. so. Okay. And I knew that I had to go ham, and that's mm-hmm. one thing that I always do when I'm writing something. I don't care who it's for. If I agree to write it, I that's my Super Bowl, right? That's mm-hmm. my, if I'm putting pen to paper, I'm gonna make sure that that is, I think that, I literally think that's the best thing that I've ever wrote. Mm-hmm. Or you would never see it. Yeah. I don't care how big, or I'm not gonna agree to write it. Mm-hmm. So I did that and I just kind of like used that to harness myself to write for something bigger. And then really, I just kept on talking on Twitter and this wasn't a strategic thing. I just, have been doing that my whole life, talking right. on the internet. And OK Player, one of the editors from OK Player, Kevin, who... Shout out to Kevin. I love him so dearly. He's he's amazing. Yeah, he's like a great, great person. Um, Kevin, I believe Kevin's wife saw me talk about Little Kim and colorism. Mm-hmm. And Kevin approached me and was like, hey, 
I think you have something going on. Will you be able to produce something? And I was like, I sure can. And yeah. I and I made that article. And I, again, I made sure that once they read this article, my hope was that they would never. It couldn't be a one-off. They would right. want to come back. They, were like, they would oh, say, "Oh, we want him." Yeah, like I wasn't just gonna like half-ass it and just collect a check. I was gonna make it so this is the best thing that I knew how to write at the time, mm-hmm. and yeah, just snowballed from there. And then even like with the New York Times and um, the New York Times. Yeah, portion, talk about yeah. that experience. About that experience, because to me that seemed like a great moment for you. Yeah, essentially, for people who are listening who don't know, Miles wrote a really to me healing right. piece after Beyonce did not win uh album of the year mm. in the 2017 2017 Grammys we're right. in 2017 yes. <laughs> against Adele and to me I think that I we we uh Jasmine and I from Giphy talk about this on a previous episode but to me I think it resonated with me because it was a hard truth, mm-hmm. but also it was inspiring. Right. And not in the way that Beyonce has other wins and this is totally okay and this is just one time and the Grammys don't matter. It was more of like, FYI, this is not new behavior from right. white establishments, period. Right. But you should know that because of who Beyonce is mm-hmm. and because of what she's done like we don't have to feel sad about this like right. we don't have to um get down on ourselves right but anyways talk about kind of how how did that piece even come to be and the reaction towards it i was tweeting <laughs> <laughs> i was working at the time i was working at the fader and i i just got of course a grammy night award night it's like a big night for things on social media mm-hmm. um and once i was done with that i just was really like working out my emotions towards it because mm-hmm. i felt like i was being asked by the culture to be sad and i just could not mm-hmm. locate a certain specific type of sadness about it because i felt like i could only be sad if she had a chance to win i could only be sad if mm-hmm. it was fair you know and i don't feel like it was fair and Long story short, Anna from New York Times contacted me and asked me, would I like to talk about this? Um, would I like to produce a piece for New York Times the next day? And I was like, sure. She linked to my thread and was like, I think this will be a great article. Will you do it? And I was like, yeah. And I think it was like 12 p.m. And she asked me for my first draft at like 3 p.m. Oh, my like gosh. Like by 3 p.m. And then like I was editing by 5. And then the next, then like by 8, she was like, okay, it's going to be up tom- sometime tomorrow. And then tomorrow it was up. The, not tomorrow. But then the next day it was up. And I, it, it just happened so fast that yeah. I couldn't even catch up to it. But it makes me really happy that people use the word healing for it. Because I was just, again, telling the truth and my perspective on mm-hmm. that event. Mm-hmm. And... The fact that it heals people who, again, might not have grown up like me, mm-hmm. might not have grown up with the point of view that I have. Yes. And for that moment, I was able to welcome them to the point of view that I've always had in the way that I gather success. I can't I can't think that I'm successful if I'm mimicking what a white man is able to do or what even what a gay white man is able to do. If I thought about that, I would not only be insane, but it would just be it would just be kind of like torture to myself. Right. I'm sure if like a white gay man produced a children's book that was on every press outlet and was in New York Times and and did did all the things I was doing, I'm sure he would be further along than I am. But I do not see, didn't see myself as a loser or a failure Mm -hmm. because I'm not where that white man might be. Like, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. And me looking at Beyonce and then... Again, it makes me reimagine what my wins are. Yeah. My wins are when I'm able to be on New York Times talking about something that is black and yeah. talk and healing other black people on New York Times. That is a win to me. Mm-hmm. A, um, just like when Beyonce had this stage, she decided to center a black woman, her black family, her black legacy, her black future, and her and her perspective as a woman, as um as a black woman. That is a win. Mm-hmm. The fact that you had all those eyes on you and the you imagery. centered yourself. Yeah, the Cause, exposure. Because yeah. when you have those, those many eyes on you, you're mm-hmm. supposed to wash yourself. You're supposed right. to be as wonder bread as possible. Mm-hmm. But she said, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to be um, even more African, even more woman, um, and, and honor 
the things about me that are specific to me. I'm not going to try to make myself general just to be more successful. And I think that is a true win. So I think that now this is a great time to kind of talk about your move to New York. Okay. And why. Oh, my God. You said that was such a doom. <laughs> You're like, are you really going to do this? Yes. No. <laughs> no, nothing like that. <laughs> why is now the right time for you to be here? Why was it time? I think I'm probably like a lot like my mother when it comes to being very spiritual. But I really listen to like what my body and my mind is saying. And I was very, very bored. And boredom is not a simple emotion for me Mm. life is full of life is infinite you know Mm. like life is strange life is cruel and tragic and beautiful life is so many different things so for me to be living and breathing in the world and be bored it's very interesting that means that I'm not Mm. stimulated that is very interesting and it's to me was kind of my hint that I needed to shake some shit up Mm. so that was like part of it um, the other part was just very professional, very business. Part of it, I was noticing that on the internet, I was getting most of my opportunities. I was not getting any opportunities from writing, from being in Atlanta. It was not, I wasn't gaining anything from it. I wasn't mm-hmm. getting any Atlanta publications or offers or interest. That was a part of it. And then when I looked at all the opportunities that I was getting, they were from New York. So, to me, it just made sense where I was like, well, what if my location and my physical location matched up with my, you know, URL location? And if all my opportunities are coming from New York, what if I was not only just able to say yes to those opportunities, but actually like network with people and actually yeah. collaborate and actually do things that you can only do in person and take meetings with editors or agents and for them to... For it not just to be a phone call or for it to be email, but for them to see how I move and how I think and, you know, see the sincerity in my eyes. Like, what <laughs> what, what, what does that look like and what, what would that do for Where my career? Where would that help you? Yeah, what would that do for my career? And I just, and I, and I thought it was worth the risk and I was bored anyway. So why not do it? And I think once I made that decision, which I made way earlier than, like, I announced that I was making that decision, mm-hmm. but I made it, like, a year ago. But, like, once it got closer, there was more, even more evidence that I was doing the right thing because I was in Atlanta in New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> but there was, like, publications in Atlanta that I love and I still love, and I won't, like, call them out to say that they're bad, but I still kind of felt like, how am I in, like, fucking New York Times right now or writing for OK Player, but mm-hmm. this, like, Atlanta-based publication is not reaching out to me or this Atlanta-based um opportunity editing opportunity or um writing opportunity is not um coming towards me and you know sometimes you resist and you break through and when you're and when you're very interested in that in your heart then you should do that mm-hmm. and sometimes you just give up and go where the love is yeah and so i just ended up going where the love is and you know my instagram has not been the same since I was on your Instagram today and I was like first of all there were some photos that I was like absolutely in love with let me pull them up oh my god that makes me feel you know I was like oh my god yes Miles you know I'm like a very basic girl are you not basic like that but like some people will come to me, specifically boys, though. Mm-hmm. But people will come to me with, like, these wild compliments of, like, you're the star, the sky, whatever. Literally, if you tell me that, like, a selfie is cute or you like my Instagram, that, like, means... Or you think I'm funny. That means so much more than me. But, like, people are always like, you're a genius, da-da-da-da, whatever. I'm like, oh. Can you just tell me I look good on Instagram? Like, like oh, my God. Like, my outfit's cute. Thank you. Like, that actually will will warm me longer than you saying that the second coming of insert whatever like black gay literary yeah. figure you know. There are these photos and I'll make sure I link to them in the footnotes of this episode but they are you, your face is beat, you have a yeah, cigarette the hat coming on. Up, the hat on and I looked at this photo and I was like where, what have I been doing my entire life? Like, <laughs> why don't I have photos like this? I was like who took these photos they were just amazing. That's what I love about living, because I live in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and I live with some amazing queer black people. And I've never, that's never really been my experience, even though I love my friends in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, I never, 
we're literally all in the same apartment together. Yeah. So my friend Mojo Disco, who was on like featured on BuzzFeed like three times, oh, but amazing. but um, Mojo's a, a makeup artist, and we it was just late, and we were drinking, and Mojo was like, "Let me beat your face, let's do something fun." Yeah. And then we were just late, and I was like, sh- "Like sure, like why the hell, like why not?" And yeah. then we did it, and then took the picture with the. Um, and then they took the picture with the iPhone 7, and we just... These took, were taken on an iPhone 7. Yeah, like, it was, amazing. like, literally nothing. Just like, amazing lighting. Yeah, like, literally nothing special happened, but the fact that we were just, like, drinking, listening to TLC, listening to the Chicago musical, and, like, <laughs> painting my face and talking about boys. Yeah. And then we just took the pictures, and we posted them the next day, and then that literally was it. But I think that's the beauty of being in, like, close proximity and in community with other queer black people who right. are creative, because... Yeah. I, we are always thinking of stuff and producing things. And there's another set of pictures where, um, to me, are like the antithesis of those pictures that I took where I'm in like a sweatshirt, I'm smoking a cigarette, I'm on a fire escape. Yeah. And like with like those pictures, I live with a photographer. Right. And he woke up and was like, I want to take your pictures. Like, let's go. So we just went to the fire escape and I drank some coffee and smoked a cigarette and right. took some pictures. Oh, and I saw those. Yeah. So that it's just so cool to be around so many creative people people all the time and you 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 can't help but to produce a thing yeah or to like honor each other so yeah that's amazing <laughs> dream come true yes so as you know in this world of con- constant turmoil i the theme of this podcast is shouting out the things that you like yes 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 <laughs> and so i want to know for you what or who is catching mm. your attention right now in a good way moment in culture a person a moment that happened that you were just kind of like i don't i don't hate this it could be problematic it could be very not problematic i feel like i have like so many let me try to like donate it down so just to like let people know it is april 16th so i don't know how <laughs> this might seem like old news by the mm-hmm. time like people hear this yeah. but i really enjoy kendrick lamar's album I specifically enjoy Kendrick Lamar's album cover and album packaging. And it's so interesting being in New York and being as busy as I've been because I'm so used to being, like, plugged into the culture and knowing exactly what's happening. Mm -hmm. But now, often I'll find myself tweeting something that I did not know was, like, a dissenting thought or I did not know, um, which is not the popular idea. So I didn't know, like, people, like... And mass hated that album cover. And oh, do they? A lot of people were just oh like, God. "This is ugly." It's that. like it's like whatever. Like I understand why they would think that, but I've been really bad about keeping up with specifically like beyond listening to music with listening to things right away. Like when Humble right. dropped, when the Humble video dropped, I think I watched it a day later because I was just busy doing. I was just busy right. doing something else, but. I mean, music and culture in that way, and, and particularly like right now, what I'm very interested in is the very apparent intersection of politics with another element of culture, right. which is which is totally what humble is. Right. But anyways, I totally agree with you. Like, I didn't know that it was a dissenting. Right. That people hate. I totally understand why they hate it. Right. So I just remember seeing it. I just, and it just made me so excited about the art, and that's how I always view album covers and book covers and movie posters it's not necessarily about being the most attractive thing i think people conflate beauty and and being attractive Mm -hmm. so the the things that we're kind of like socialized to to be enticed by um we put those things on an album cover and that makes you want to listen to it or Mm -hmm. watch it or um read it but the album cover was beautiful because for me, when I looked at it, it made me very interested about what was happening. Mm. And it told a story. And it just pieced together things in a way that um, made me excited about the, the meat, which is the music. I'm like, okay, so I saw Humble. I kind of know. It's called Damn. He looks like destroyed. He looks like disoriented. I was just really excited. Like, it kind mm-hmm. of felt like really 90s. Like, looked like like the back of, like, a 90s, like, album cover. And it kind of looked like lo-fi it just got me really excited about what was happening and i think i'm always on the side of artists who decide to be interesting rather than attractive because that's such a rarity Mm -hmm. um so i was very happy that kendrick decided to be interesting in that moment and not necessarily attractive in a way that you know 
everybody knows you could put like a light skinned naked woman on an album cover or be yeah. really tough. Everybody knows what you can do in order to be attractive to the masses when it comes to hip hop. And he kind of transgressed that. And I just thought that was really interesting. And I dug that Amazing. as an artist. Yeah. I will say that this is certainly an unpopular thought, but <laughs> I was not into humble when I heard it. Really? And I think it was I think it was two things that are also super particular to Darian and mm. who I and who I am. To me, I felt like he was very much speaking to me. Mm. Like to hear someone in your headphones go, be humble. Mm-hmm. Right? And I and I will also say that I'm a very literal person. Mm-hmm. I am a very black and white thinker, and right. I acknowledge and understand the gray. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons why I'm able to make decisions and move and do things is because I view things in black and white, yes or no, and I'm able to make decisions very that decisive. way. Very decisive. Yeah. Right. So for me, I was like, who is he telling to be humble? Right. Is it me? Right. Or and, and then I'm like, well, he doesn't know me, so he clearly can't <laughs> be talking to me. I'm like, he don't know me, so he can't be talking to me. And then I will say, and I know that this has been a talking point, mm. but... I, I feel like one of the most distinct and, and memorable clips from the entire music video was the one woman who you see in the music video who goes from going from, you know, all Made done up, up mm-hmm. into having no makeup on. And I felt like there were two messages to that, that that I felt like you could have interpreted from what he was saying. Mm-hmm. One, it was like, you don't have to dress up for me to love you. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, what, to me, which is like, I think what I also felt is like, I look down on girls who 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 get done up in this way right. and like be humble, right. like it's okay. And so to me, and it also made me feel some type of way that there were a lot of black publications that voice uplifting black women and voice coming together um, in supporting black women, no matter what their hair color is or their hair texture is or their skin color is. Right. And um and they kind of use that as a way to be like, look at Kendrick being so black woman empowered in this way where he's telling us that he doesn't care so you shouldn't either and to me it was like I thought that both versions of that girl were cool and okay Mm. and that message mixed with be humble to me was like confusing and it made me a little internally defensive right no (laughs) I definitely agree with that Mm -hmm. but tell me how you feel I don't even think like it matters if I agree with it or not like that was like the wrong language you use like Fuck if I agree. I definitely understand and, like, you can take or leave if, like, that means anything to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, what I will say is that, A, I think there's two things that are at play when I interpret music. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing that is interpreted specifically with Kendrick Lamar is, like, a male privilege, right? Yeah. So there's, like, a certain type of, like, I don't have, I could never pretend to have the sensitivity that a cis woman has. Um, when a cis man is telling you something, mm-hmm. and I think that's like, and I like, and I, and I name cis because like those conversations just seem to be happening between like very obvious two people, and it's it's obvious that like a trans experience are like excluded from that, right? Totally, yes. So um, I think that's just something that I could never. I'm just not as sensitive when I listen to music. Yeah, and I think there's also like a queering that happens when I listen to music where. <laughs> it, it never has anything to do with me. So I just don't, again, that informs my sensitivity to it. So right. even when I listen to, like, Beyonce say, like, bow down, bitches, right? Right. I don't never, I automatically put myself in Beyonce's spot. But yeah. I also know that, like, I don't really fit in that dynamic. So I have to transform the music to um, talk to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, when I hear um, Kendrick Lamar say, be humble, I know he's not talking to me because he ignores me. I know mm-hmm. that he's not talking to the people who are in my community because he ignores, like, my community, like, the in, like specifically like, the queer black community. Yeah. So, like, what he's, what I really did was, like, hear a beat, hear an energy of a song mm-hmm. and transform it to me what I wanted to mean. Yeah. So, the kind of literal line for line um, kind of takeaway just doesn't happen when I listen to, like, hip-hop music because I'm ready for the people who I love to disregard me. So, I've been listening to, like, Ghostface Killer since I was, like, a teenager, right? Yeah. Or, like, a preteen. And I know that Ghostface Killer has to be homophobic. He has to hate me. But I just kind of transcend that. And I think right. there's this kind of like weird intellectual creative empathy that happens um, for queer black people because we know we're not going to be represented. Mm-hmm. So maybe I wasn't ready to feel disregarded in that way because right. I often feel like I can transcend anything that would sound belittling to 
another yeah. black woman. But for some reason, I wasn't able to do it with this song. And I think that Kendrick Lamar like arrives with a certain expectation. I think mm-hmm. that like because he's obviously intelligent, he's obviously a critical. Uh, he, I shouldn't say he's a critical thinker. He's obviously capable of a critical thought when he mm-hmm. is interested in making those critical thoughts. Mm-hmm. He's not a habitual critical thinker because there's some things that he arrives at where I'm like, where the fuck did you get that from? But I think there's when you listen to him, you, you're not listening to Migos. You're not listening to these people who kind of made it obvious that I'm not actually interested in engaging with you in a certain type of way, in an academic way. Mm-hmm. Um or in a socially conscious way, I'm interested in making you move your body or making you feel confident or making you feel sexy. And I'm interested in producing uh, like a more visceral type of music. And I think that Kendrick Lamar has uniquely, it's the same thing with Kanye West too. The reason why people hold Kanye West to like such a high regard is because he kind of not just made Gold Digger, he also made these Jesus Walks and he also yeah. made All Falls Down and and and, and Never Let totally. Me Down. Right. So we held him to a different regard. We held him to a different standard. And when they um, fail that standard, we hold them to, um, we have questions. And right. I think those questions, I, I think those are healthy questions. I think they're questions that um, should be asked. I just don't think they're questions that I can answer because I think the true answer is that people are just lazy. I think that he was really being lazy when I think of it as like a, cis woman to cis man mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. I say all that to say that I have listened to Damn and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite song? Yeah. Um. Not yet. I need to listen to it a second time, but I'm really, really interested to read like some thoughtful writing yeah. on Damn and some and some reviews on what people are thinking and what they've and what some writers have really gotten from oh, it. Oh, that's great cuz I have to do one tomorrow. Do you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for, okay player. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's time for the plus one segment. Oh my gosh. It's here. Oh my goodness. You can shout out a person, place, thing or experience that you are loving right now. What would it be? What is it? Oh my god, this is so <sighs> This is embarrassing. That's like the reason I was like so anxious to say it. <laughs> so the thing that I really appreciate <laughs> coming to New York, <laughs> there's this app called Seamless. <laughs> Miles. <laughs> Miles. Yes. I, okay, continue, continue. It is so important to me because what they do not tell you about New York <laughs> is that, <laughs> sure, there's fruit and vegetables on every corner, but they don't tell you that the true luxury in New York is not property is not whatever it is time you yes and I live in Flatbush Brooklyn and having seamless because everything is not the same so like having seamless specifically that is like specifically for local New York restaurants Mm -hmm. and I can go there and I can go get Jamaican food or I can order it on my lift ride back on my bus ride back Seamless has literally saved me from hunger on so many nights (laughs) when I know I'm not going to like cook or I've drank too much or like like it's just it it, is a Mm lifesaver and it has become so important to me and it is my favorite thing that I've discovered in New York because I don't know I just even tonight, like, what if I like, what if we were not going to go, go out to eat and I had to come home and then I had to do something else right. and then by the time Save I get there, it's, it's 10 and mm-hmm. I need to eat, like... You know what? Seamless. I actually want to... I'm going to make my plus one something similar in Instacart because... Listen. Have you been introduced to Instacart? Yes. Okay. And my whole thing is, like, I really don't have Instacart money. Mm-hmm. Instacart... I think that Instacart can become a huge just... You you want to order 10 lemons from Whole Foods and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you have ordered $70 right. worth of what? Right. I don't even know. Right. But there was a this these past few weeks have been really busy for me. I've just been working on a lot of projects that I'm really excited about mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff that I'm really ha- happy about, but I just did not have time to go to the grocery store. I just needed to be able to like have the food appear and yeah. cook it so that I could like not have to eventually order seamless like five nights that right. week. And so at first I was like ordering on seamless is not something that I need or on Instacart is not something I need to feel guilty about. Mm-hmm. Ordering seamless is not something you need to feel guilty about. We are here and just trying to be the most productive people that we can and using yeah. these apps to do it. Yeah. And people don't like tell you 
maybe they do tell you, but it's almost it's like really interesting because I had to get off the other day. I had to get off at the Times Square stop, mm-hmm. and I thought that how like how interesting the mecca of this city is called Time Squared. <laughs> like I just I was like this is so interesting because that's oh the that's the one thing I've been thinking about more and more about is time and how everything that people do that is seen as luxurious, quote unquote luxurious or privilege here is really in the best interest of having more time. So yes. you get the lift with your friends, not because you guys think you're fancy or you're too good for the train. You get it because you need more time. time. And the train takes too much of your time. You do seamless because you cannot cook. You buy a crock pot. Right. <laughs> not because like you're into the whatever soup fad there is. You do it because I actually don't have to sleep <laughs> over the stove. Like No, it's true. And time I always tell my mom this. And I particularly felt this really hard when I first moved to New York. Mm-hmm. Time is money here. And it is not only time is money, time is privilege, time is time like, is a privilege. Like and it just depends on how much of that what in uh, budgeting budgeting your time is right. budgeting your money are pretty much the same right. things here. Right. So yeah. I agree. Yeah. I have no I have no shame. <laughs> Either. <laughs> Miles, thank you. Thank you. This has been amazing. I'm not just saying that. I say that at the end of all of my podcasts, and I really do mean it. But I'm really glad that we were able to have this conversation. One of my goals from ILOTS, like anything, is to have people on who I know are these voices Mm -hmm. that one day someone is going to Google Miles Johnson Mm -hmm. from someplace across the world, and this episode is going to pop up, and they are going to learn all about you and who you were, and this is going to go in the archives someplace, and people are going to have this piece of you and this piece of me, and it is going to be in documentaries one day, and it's going to be amazing. Yes. This is is the kind of stuff I come to New York for, or why I came to New York for, is to connect with people and to do things that feel more intimate. And, yeah, I'm very, again, honored because I take people's projects very seriously. And I think what you are doing, from what I've heard, because I was listening, I kind of binge-listened. Oh, good. But um, it just is beautiful, and I'm just very honored that you let me be a part of that legacy that you're building. So a little link in the infinite link that makes me feel very good. Yeah, Yeah. same. And I I feel the same way with you. So here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Miles.